0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado will continue to rely on private prisons even though the federal government plans to phase them out. The U.S. Department of Justice announced its plans last month. It cited a federal report that found for-profit prisons are less safe and less secure than publicly run facilities. CPR's Andrea Dukakis is here with me in the studio. She's been following the private prison industry for years. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks. The federal report critical of private prisons came from the Justice Department's Inspector General. What did it find?
1: The report looked at facilities where the Federal Bureau of Prisons contracts with private companies Companies. And it describes a dangerous environment where there are higher assault rates than in prisons that are run by the government. And that includes inmate assaults on other inmates or on prison staff. It also found higher rates of lockdowns. Those are when inmates are confined to their cells, often res- in response to a disturbance at a prison. And there were more reports of contraband like cell phones being found in these contract prisons. Mm. Now, this information isn't new to a lot of people. There are cris- critics of the four profit prison industry at the local, state and federal level. And that includes Colorado. Uh, We'll talk in a bit about the state's own contracts with private prisons. But one longtime critic is Christy Donner of the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. She says private prisons take too many shortcuts to reduce costs.
2: So whether that's in not having adequate programs for people that are inside Lower staff pay, so they have much higher staff turnover and less, you know, safe facilities.
1: There was also a recent Mother Jones story where a reporter went undercover as a private prison guard and witnessed a lot of violence as well as inmates not getting the medical attention they needed.
0: Hmm. What led the federal government and
1: the states to start depending on private prisons? They came in to fill a need. In the 1990s, the crime rate was rising and more people were ending up in prison. And as crime rose, there was pressure on governments to get tougher on crime. Sentences for people charged with drug Fences started getting longer and longer, and governments couldn't build enough prisons to keep up with the need. So it was really a symbiotic relationship. Uh, The federal government and the states needed more cells, and private operators were willing to step in. Um, So governments pay a certain amount per day, depending on the facility, to these companies to house the inmates. And the governments guarantee there'll be a certain number of, of inmates in each facility. So how quickly will the
0: Justice Department phase out the
1: use of private prisons? It won't happen right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are 13 of these privately run prisons that contract with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. That's part of the Justice Department. And most of the contracts won't be renewed once they expire. Part of the reason the Justice Department can phase out private prisons is that the federal prison population is declining, and that began in 2013 with new sentencing guidelines and changes in the way low-risk drug offenders are charged.
0: Are there any of these privately run federal prisons in Colorado?
1: Colorado doesn't have any. Mm -hmm. It does have two run by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. One is the Supermax Prison in Florence, and that houses some of the most notorious federal criminals like the Unabomber and Terry Nichols convicted in the Oklahoma City bombing. But Colorado is home to a federal immigrant detention facility run by a private operator. That's in Aurora, and the facility comes under the heading of the Department of Homeland Security. So it isn't affected by this Justice Department decision. The Aurora facility and other detention centers have been the subject of criticism for holding people suspected of immigration violations in poor conditions. Democratic Representative Jared Polis has visited the Aurora facility. He believes for-profit operators have an interest in keeping people there.
3: Hundreds of Coloradans are Detained for months at a time at taxpayer expense.
0: Many of them have not committed any any criminal acts. Um, many of them have jobs in communities, they're working, and simply because of a tail light out or a speeding ticket, they could find themselves uh, in detention for three months, six months. When I went there, there were even some people who had been in detention for a year.
1: Polis says the companies also have an interest in offering subpar services to cut costs. And while he believes many of the detainees shouldn't be there at all, he thinks the federal government, not private companies, should take full responsibility for housing them.
0: But I hear the Department of Homeland Security is also examining its for-profit prison contracts at detention centers like the one in Aurora.
1: Right. It also has concerns about how those facilities are run. So there's a chance there'll be a similar announcement from officials there at some point. Okay. Who are the operators of these private prisons? There are several of them, but there are two key players. Uh, One is the GEO Group and the other is Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA. They've seen a precipitous drop in their stock in the last few weeks because investors are getting nervous. Um, But even if the feds were to entirely end their relationship with these companies, a large part of their business is contracts with state departments of corrections.
0: What do these companies say about the federal decision to stop working with them?
1: I requested an interview with CCA after the Department of Homeland Security announced it would look at its contracts with private operators. And they sent me a statement saying they've Worked with the federal government for more than 30 years and they welcome a review of the relationship. Uh, they say they've been subject to thousands of government audits and they're proud of the quality and value of the services they provide. Private companies see hypocrisy in federal criticism of their facilities since they say there are many problems, violence, lack of good health care, at government-run facilities too. I see. The
0: Colorado Department of Corrections contracts with three prisons that are privately owned and operated. Tell us about those.
1: First, I should say the state has closed down several of its privately run prisons over the years, and much of that's uh, because of the uh, declining prison population. Even critics of the private prisons say Colorado's ahead of the game in deciding to close some of these prisons. Most recently, the Kit Carson Correctional Facility in Burlington is closing. It was operated by CCA, and state lawmakers really wanted to keep it open, even though the beds there weren't full. It was a huge source of economic Development for the Burlington area in eastern Colorado, and the state legislature even appropriated $3 million to keep it open and keep paying CCA. But the two parties couldn't come to an agreement. So the state now has three privately owned and operated prisons left, one in Crowley County, one in Bent County, run by CCA. Another is run by a group in New Jersey. And the state has also just entered a new partnership with CCA to run its halfway houses where inmates go when they're first released from prison. And that's not making critics of private prison operators very happy.
0: I understand the state doesn't plan to follow the lead of the federal government and phase out its remaining contract with private corporations.
1: I contacted the governor's office about that. They sent a statement saying, quote, The state of Colorado plans to maintain its relationship with both current private correctional providers. Their performance is under constant review and they're meeting the needs of the Department of Corrections. Uh, Christy Donner of the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition says right now the state still needs the 3,500 beds that private prisons now provide. The total prison population in Colorado is more than 20,000.
2: The only way to reduce the use of the for profit prison industry in Colorado, um, and I think this is probably true for the Bureau of Prisons as well, is you have to reduce the population. So I think as the population continues to decline, then you can see a um, closure of additional privates. But the state couldn't close those facilities today if it wanted to unless it was going to release 3,500 people.
1: And that just isn't realistic right now. So big changes on the federal level, but nothing in terms of Colorado's current partnership with private companies.
0: Andrea, thank you so much. Sure. That was CPR's Andrew Dukakis. We spoke about Colorado's use of private prisons and the U.S. Justice Department's decision to stop using them. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Elena Nichols has rarely met a sport she won't try. Skiing, surfing, basketball. The latter requires her to compete in a wheelchair. That's because Nichols suffered a spinal cord injury 16 years ago that redirected her life. Since then, she's become the first American woman to medal at both the Summer and Winter Paralympics, and she took up a new sport for the Games that start in Rio next week. Welcome back to the show.
4: Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for that intro. So, are there any sports
0: that you won't try?
4: <laughs> you know, I, I would try everything just about once. I've been skydiving and paragliding. Um, I can't think of one that I won't try.
0: So what is this new sport that you're competing in for the Paralympics?
4: Well, I started sprint kayaking about two years ago. Sprint kayaking. Sprint kayaking is a single person in a very long, narrow boat, and it's done on flat water, no waves, and it's basically start to finish, 200-meter dash in a kayak. So you have a double-bladed paddle, and you sprint as fast as you can from start to finish.
0: Your sport is part of a new event called paracanoe. How does being paralyzed from the waist down affect your ability to canoe? It seems like it wouldn't be too much of an issue since you're sitting down in the boat.
4: You would think so. I I thought the same, actually, when I started the sport, but it turns out uh, there's actually a lot of leg function and core strength involved in being a sprint kayak athlete. I'm more or less trying to mimic that leg drive with my core strength because I don't, I can't actually push off my legs. Interesting. So, and I've had to figure out, you know, what is the most effective way to put a paraplegic into a sprint kayak boat? So it's been a long sort of two years of research and development and I think I'm pretty close and what I have now and going into Rio is what's going to have to work for me
0: so what how do you do it how do you How did you decide to finally make that that work?
4: Well, I actually took a lot of my experience from wheelchair basketball and alpine skiing into the sprint kayak sport. So I took a mono ski bucket, which is what is attached to the machine that I use to ski, hmm. and I actually took those same straps and strapped them on. To this bucket that I then put onto a kayak seat foundation and then I put that inside the boat and then the other thing I did was basically I put my legs completely flat in the boat and then put a piece of foam that kind of shoves up and under the cockpit of the boat to keep my legs completely flat and my knees straight so I can actually you know pull off the water and transfer energy through my legs into the boat.
0: So you had to essentially re-engineer this entire way just to get into the boat and then to actually essentially be effective when you're actually in the water.
4: I did, and I I would be remiss if I didn't mention all the people that helped me do that. Um, one of my coaches that I first started with, Spike Kane, he, he wrapped his head around the whole process, and I've had some other people in the monoski world um, that actually develop monoskis themselves that help me with the bucket.
0: So does each person competing in this event have to kind of figure out their own way to, to work with the with the canoe?
4: You do. Actually, because it's a new sport, this really hasn't been done yet. One of the best parts about traveling internationally for this sport is really just to see what people have figured out.
0: I understand you trained for this in part by surfing. How, how does that work?
4: Yeah. So I have about a 7-foot, 6-inch long board. And I sit on top of that with my feet out in front of me, and then I propel myself with the kayak paddle into the wave. So that's been one of the, the greatest joys of this experience for me is uh, figuring out the ocean and learning how to surf, meeting other adaptive athletes that are also learning how to surf and once again, just learning a new sport and being humbled by it.
0: What do you like about competing in the water? Is it that, you know, some days are great, some days are not so great, and it's that challenge, the the, the mm. surprising nature of each day in the water is different?
4: I like that element of it, yes. The, the ocean is always changing and every wave is different. Uh, I also like that it's a little bit softer when you hit your face on it <laughs> compared to a uh, mountain, which you are very familiar with in Colorado.
0: Right. Have you surprised yourself in how well you've taken to the water?
4: You know, I I have. I've always been very competitive. And one thing I've learned throughout my three sports now, wheelchair basketball, alpine skiing, and now sprint kayaking, is if you surround yourself with the best in the world, you'll rise to that level. And I find that I feel so alive and so free in the water And, uh, you know, anything I can do to get out of my wheelchair is fun for me.
0: As you alluded to earlier, I think, your accident in 2000 happened when you were snowboarding in Colorado. You you over-rotated doing a Mm backflip and landed on a rock. Do do you still think back to that accident? Is there a day that goes by where you don't think about it?
4: You know, it's been 16 years now. I've almost been in a wheelchair as long as I was able-bodied. I broke my back when I was 17, so... You know, for the first five years, I think that accident plagued me and I thought about it every day. And when the day that I broke my back, November 19th, would come along, it was devastating. And I thought about how different my life could be. And I really struggled as a person, as a young person, a female with a disability in finding my identity. I actually was a three-sport athlete before my injury and... Learning how to be <laughs> without sport was one of the hardest experiences of my life, and that lasted about two years until I learned about wheelchair basketball. I learned about the Paralympic Games and the potential that I could represent the, our country at the highest level. I met other women in wheelchairs that were, you know, holding their heads high and and really proud of who they were. They were hopeful about their future and investing in their education. And, you know, that really brought me a lot of of hope for my life. And, you know, about five years post-injury and on, I started really giving thanks for that accident and mm-hmm. being grateful for the experience because, honestly, my life has been incredible since I started playing uh, adaptive sports and I've been able to travel the world and represent the Paralympic team for over ten years now, and uh, I just I you know there's no telling what my life would have been like had I not broken my back. But I you know I can only give thanks for what I do have, and it's been a pretty incredible journey.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking to Elena Nichols, who will be competing in the Paralympics, which starts next week. She's already the first American woman to win gold in both the Summer and Winter Paralympics, and she took up a new sport, sprint kayaking, this year. Do you find yourself chomping at the bit watching the Rio Olympics?
4: Absolutely. That was, it was so exciting once it finally came around, you know, the anticipation of the Olympics gets us Paralympians just the same. Did you see any sport that you want to try next? <laughs> you know, I, I'm i really in love with surfing. And I, I was really excited to learn that uh, surfing for the Able-Bodied Olympics was added to the 2020 Games in Tokyo. So that's a great first step for the Paralympics considering adaptive surfing in the future. I think it's such a great sport. It brings... It's brought so much um, joy to my life, but also healing and the experience of being out in the ocean for somebody with a disability is so freeing and it really does give you perspective on life. If you can go out in the ocean and, and tackle some big waves, then you can get back on the shore and do whatever life hands you.
0: Now, most of the media and the attention that was on Rio for the Olympics is, is gone now. How mm-hmm. does that affect you as an athlete and a competitor?
4: Well, you know, I I think the Paralympic movement is gaining ground and making strides for, you know, mainstream media. And it's really important for us to get our due diligence when it comes to the media. We train just as hard with less of our bodies to compete for the same amount of time as our able-bodied counterparts. And for us, it's so important that the general public understands what the Paralympics is about and really, you know, it validates our hard work. I'm, I'm up every day at 6 a.m. on the water and I want people to understand that I've dedicated my time and energy to that so that I can hopefully inspire people to reach for their gold, whatever that looks like. And, you know, with the media, we, just, we would love for more and more people to see what people with disabilities are capable of.
0: What advice are you giving to younger athletes on the U.S. Paralympic team? This is your fifth Paralympics.
4: Uh, One thing I would say is just to really try to be present. You know, when I first showed up in Beijing, first of all, I'm in China. It's one of my first international trips. And believe me when I say I was a deer in the headlights, I couldn't believe that that was happening. And then the next thing you know, it's over. Enjoy meeting all the people from all these other countries Breathe in the culture of Rio and don't worry so much about the end result.
0: If things go well for you in Rio, you'd be the first mm-hmm. U.S. athlete at the Olympics or Paralympics, I've been told, to win gold in three different sports. What would that mean to you?
4: You know, that's that's pretty incredible. I would be honored. I was so grateful to be the first female American to win gold in the summer and winter games and you know my my main goal of starting this third sport and stretching myself was showing people that even as a gold medalist i still don't know if i can do something and that's what was so intriguing for me about the sport i didn't know if i could make the team and it's about the reach i really hope it inspires people to try something that they've never done that has never been done and uh, that, that really does stretch them out of their comfort zone.
0: This could be your last Olympics. How does that feel?
4: I think it comes a time for every athlete to hang up their formal training shoes or wheelchair, as it were, and really enjoy um, being able to be active without formally training. I think that's going to be a great aspect of my life.
0: Well, congratulations and best of luck to you in Rio, and thanks so much for joining us.
4: Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Elena Nichols will compete in the Paralympics, which start next week. She's already the first American woman to win gold in both the Summer and Winter Paralympics, and she took up a new sport, sprint kayaking, this year. Still to come, visiting the Conundrum Hot Springs near Aspen may be on many bucket lists, but is it being overused? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's hot springs are a huge draw. There are hundreds of soak spots across the state, some privately run. Others are considered wild, meaning they're free and open to the public. One is called Conundrum in the White River National Forest. It's very popular, but it's being abused. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis is here to tell us about a new National Forest plan to protect Conundrum. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So this isn't actually an easy place to get to, is it?
5: No. You'd think with how popular it is, it would be. But it's an eight-and-a-half-mile hike just to reach the hot springs. The largest pool of the three fits more than a dozen people, and the views of the steep valley and towering cliffs are stunning. It's easy to understand why it's on so many bucket lists.
0: How many people visit Conundrum each year?
5: There's actually been a 285 percent increase in its use since 2006 Mm. and more than 5,300 campers registered to stay overnight in about the last year. That's an average of 14 campers a night, but the area sees much less use in the colder months. So most people visit on summer weekends with upwards of 300 campers a night.
0: The Forest Service is considering limiting the number of people who can stay overnight. Is that right?
5: Yeah, that's right. They're drafting an overnight visitor's use management plan. That's highly likely to suggest a permit system, but there's no certainty on that right now. According to Karen Schreuer, the district ranger in the area, she just knows that right now, quote, the current situation isn't working. She says they only have 18 designated campsites in the Conundrum area. The 18 sites obviously can't hold the 300 people camping there at once, so everyone is spreading out and junking up the place. The management plan is a response to things like illegal fire rings and campsites and the lack of regard for dog leash laws. Schreyer says an average of 40 pounds of trash is carried out by rangers every weekend and has become a popular spot for college students. They'll carry in cases of beer, boom boxes, you name it. She's heard a story of a bachelor party bringing a blow-up doll in the water with them. Oh. She, she says, unfortunately, it's become a place where almost anything goes.
0: Deborah Frazier knows the state's hot springs pretty well. She wrote a guidebook to them, and he reached out to her about the possibility of a permit system. What did she have to say?
5: Frazier recounted how on a recent trip to the area, she had to keep her nose and face covered from the rancid stench of human waste. She says the pools have tested positive for low levels of E. coli from the nearby contamination. She believes the permit system is long overdue.
1: Their responsibility is to preserve it for future generations. Today, because of the overuse, it looks quite different than it does 10 or 20 years ago. That area is just getting pounded.
5: Karen Troyer with the Forest Service did say it's sad that somebody who might want to find a true wilderness experience is not going to experience that at all.
0: So tell me more about the possibility of this permit system. What does that mean for a national forest?
5: A permit system that limits access is something of a last resort. Currently, the Indian Peaks Wilderness is the only other federal land that uses an overnight permit system in Colorado. Meanwhile, I talk with Paul Blackman of the Pagosa Springs District, home to another wild hot springs called Rainbow. I ask if they've been experiencing the same issues as Conundrum and if they would ever consider a permit system themselves. He said there are signs of overuse, but visitation has stayed pretty consistent. He says the Womanooch Wilderness Area, where Rainbow is, has never seriously considered a permit system that actually limits access. But they were planning on moving forward with the permit system simply to track use of the area.
0: We subsequently
6: abandoned that effort uh, due to a um, very large budget cut that our recreation program unexpectedly received. And we just didn't feel we had the ability to enforce the Or even administer a permit system.
5: So, as the Forest Service considers the option of an overnight permit system for Conundrum Hot Springs, they'll have to consider the costs of enforcement. A maximum capacity permit usually costs a camper money, which goes towards enforcement.
0: What's next in the process? Is there a comment period?
5: Yeah, Karen Schroyer says the public will have the opportunity to comment in the next couple of months. The draft is scheduled to release in the next two or three weeks and will include multiple options for the Forest Service to consider. We got a lot of comments ourselves from readers on Facebook and at CPRnews.org, and most seem to be in favor of the permit system. Kristen Hostetter of Denver says it's one of her favorite places, and she hopes the permit system will, quote, keep it beautiful for years and years. Chelsea Rawlings of Denver said the last time she went, she carried out a full bag of trash that wasn't even hers. And Leslie Freed of Longmont said Conundrum has been on her bucket list for years, but mainly for the idea of quiet and seclusion, two things hard to find there now.
0: All right, Michael, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks
5: for
3: having me.
0: CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis spoke about a new management plan the National Forest Service is working on. It can include a permit system for Conundrum Hot Springs. <laughs> The music of folk singer Gregory Allen Isakoff is often intimate, sometimes like a whisper. But it takes on a much bigger sound on his latest album. ¶¶ He's backed on this record by the Colorado Symphony. Over the years, when we've interviewed Isakoff, his Boulder County farm looms large. Agriculture brought him to Colorado, and this is his refuge. And when he's not on the road, he says he buys the largest container of coffee creamer he can, so he never has to leave this place. His studio is also there, and it's where he mixed the album with the symphony. Isakoff will get top billing at Red Rocks Amphitheater for the first time on Sunday. My colleague Ryan Warner joined him at his farm in June.
2: This is a butter lettuce, heirloom butter lettuce. Um, Three varieties of kale, arugula, six varieties of broccoli rabe, uh, four varieties of beets, chard. And this, again, will be all seed we're saving, you know.
6: You're essentially a seed farm this year. This year, yeah. So do you think Um, of yourself as a farmer, a musician, a farmer-musician? I don't
2: know. I, I mean, I went to horticulture school. That's how I came out to Colorado. Music was sort of something that I just did in in the privacy of my kitchen for nobody forever and then I started playing out and it kind of just
6: scared the shit out of me and I was like I better do this you You, I think the term these days everyone is using is you leaned in to the fear I did I'm still having fun with it (laughs) having fun with the fear (laughs) what are you afraid of about making music I
2: think it's just um how vulnerable and uh, the rush of, of being vulnerable and Kind of inviting people into your world is such a, it's such a trip for me.
6: Are you a more successful farmer or musician?
2: <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, it's, they're both things that I'm, I feel like I'm never going to master.
6: <laughs> I think this is my
2: 12th season of gardening in a spot, you know. Um, I've moved around different farms and stuff, but I'm still like, how does this work? Every time we're seeding, we're like, this is crazy. We put things in the ground, they just come up. Is that, know, that a bit crazy like songwriting? I probably there's probably a lot of connections. I feel like a crazy person every day because I'm just running around fixing wells, ditches and running back to the studio to finish something or you know I feel like I'm constantly just like an insane person in their robe with like bunny you know cigarette burns all over myself, you know, it's just like an insane person.
6: You have sheep too, don't you? Yeah, we got sheep. You want to come to you? Sure. Oh, there they are. There they are. Are those those are goats. They're sheep. They're, they're sheep. Oh boy, you can tell I've been in the city too long. No, they look like they're straight hair sheep. Oh, okay, that's so why it's throwing me. Called Katahdens. Yeah, they we don't have to
2: shear them. They kind of dread out. See so, yeah, how they're kind of it's kind of falling off of them, which are great for touring bands. They're great pets for touring bands. Wait, yeah. why are because these great? Because they just no maintenance. They're just
6: they're like the cat. They're of like, livestock. <laughs> they're the cats of livestock. Do they baa when totally. you're recording? Uh,
2: when they're in the stables sometimes But so we've double insulated that room pretty good You know, so once in a while you'll get chickens or sheep
6: Can we go into your studio?
2: Sure Take you this way
6: On our way there though, I want to ask you about this property So it's got like, I don't know, five buildings on it maybe And and you live here with some of the bandmates, don't you? Yeah, um,
2: with Steve, our guitar player And um, Jamie lives in the back trailer our engineer, he also works for Nathaniel.
6: Nathaniel Raitliff mm-hmm.
2: of now the Night's Sweat. So he's never here now, because <laughs> they're always out. And so do you Just think of this is that,
6: like an artist's
2: colony? Yeah, I think everyone here is an artist. Yeah, everyone is. Is this
6: what you pictured? It was Your a, life it, being?
2: It was unintentional, but it's,
6: I'm pretty stoked. In the studio, there's a lot of newfangled equipment. I mean, I see an Apple computer, for instance. But I also see, is that like an analog tape machine? Yeah, there's a couple
2: tape machines and a couple keyboards. Uh, This is a Rhodes. It's a whirly,
6: upright piano. And to what extent is your music and this album with the CSO done on analog equipment? All of it was mixed onto tape,
2: through tape. But yeah, we mixed on the computer as well. But what did the tape provide you? It always kind of glues records together, in my experience. It's sort of just, um, and you can hear maybe it's a little fuller and more low-end without the tape. Maybe it's like a little more clean and pristine, but then tape kind of glues everything together. It makes it feel like a record.
6: Is it a warmth?
2: It is. Oh, yeah. It has a, a, a lot of warmth.
3: Now I circle the bars on the promenade While the girl's in the glass, they're just throwing me shade. I'm saving my coins of Jingle and Jane. She's out plucking strings in the pouring rain. She's out plucking strings in the pouring rain.
6: You recorded with the symphony at Betcher Hall, but then you did post-production here. Yeah. Yeah, this is
2: where I'm making a new record right now as well. Hence all the papers and <laughs> microphones and <laughs> drums out right now.
6: <laughs> so one well-publicized fact about you is that you tend to write lyrics on, like, these giant post-it notes. <laughs>
2: yeah, dude, I do. Well, I, I just get annoyed with flipping pages, you know, with a guitar. And you're, like, right at the end of the page, and you have to, like, find the next... I hate that feeling. So then those I those the
6: giant post-its?
2: Yeah, I got, then, so I got really into these, these giant post-it notes. So I put them up on this wall, mainly. Will you read a few
6: of these lyrics for me? What's oh, sure. this? Uh,
2: this is this turned into Master and Hound. This was kind of the rough sketches, hence the coffee. But, uh, you know, it was a different song a little bit. You know, you can tell where it kind of came from.
3: Oh, yeah. Where were you when I was still kind? A water trader waiting on the line It's just a dry gin it's drink, dry drink of mine
6: I understand that the first and the last lyrics of a song are especially important to you.
2: You know, yeah, I'm always hunting for first lines and last lines I really... You're kind of um, starting the relationship with the song, you're like being proactive and we're going to be like, hey, I got the first line. You want to help me finish this? So it's like this kind of living thing that you're working on. And sometimes it can take months and months and months, you know, to just wait for the rest of it to come. But I, I feel like that's my job initially. Is to really is to get on the right
6: footing with a song. Yeah. One thing that I hear in your voice is an intimacy. It draws you in. Like you're not a belter, like I don't know, you're no Ethel merman no, Allen, no. um and yet working with an orchestra, it strikes me that you might have to be a belter, or maybe there's just good amplification. Did you have to sing differently for this record no i uh
2: I was curious about how the collaboration was gonna work out, just musically, and you know space is really important to me in the music, so what do you mean by space? It's just kind of the, uh, our biggest ally. I'm always adding space, cutting out lines, cutting out action in in music, so things can breathe.
6: So it's spare.
2: Yes, and sparse. So I was like really curious about a 75 piece orchestra,
6: which feels very heavy. In yeah,
2: giant. And so we recorded 15 songs, and yeah, we chose the ones that just really had. They had both. They had that epic, soaring. Thing that you would kind of expect and they also have this great intimacy that we were so stoked about
6: that we got. Where does that come out? Give, give me an example of a track. I think Liars is a good track that has like, you know,
2: there's almost nothing for half the song when everything kind of lands. Liar
6: is the one new track
2: for the Yes, album. it is, yeah. Um, so kind of like that line when it says
3: uh, been riding, riding lots of trains train. yeah.
2: uh, that's like, you know, 80 of us kind of
3: landing right there. Same ones as you How come you get to talk To everybody Just looking out my window The night
6: you have to change songs so they worked with the orchestra? And you had some help in that, I think, from from a member of Devochka. Tom Hagerman, yeah, and and Jake Lifford. Yeah, from Jump Little Children.
2: Both killer musicians. And um, totally got the songs. They kind of get it. They weren't interested in, like, we have to use everything all the time, you know? I think there's a lot of woodwinds that are just kind of have 18 bars of rest, which, you know, you want to kind of bring... As an arranger, as a composer, you want to bring everything in eventually, but
6: for some of these songs, just didn't call for it. So um, That has to be the mind-boggling part of working with an orchestra, is there are millions, really, of, of directions you could go. So many options. Gosh, did that keep you up at night?
2: It was like a six- to nine-month sleepless process. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'd go back and forth with these arrangements, you know, and they were trippy because they were just MIDI. Um, oh, very kind of lo-fi, low-grade
6: low versions
2: of the songs. Even the vocal line was like
6: MIDI male vocal, like keyboard sound. Like it was I... like an old cell phone ring. Totally okay. <laughs>
2: And so we were kind of mapping everything out. But you could hear, you know, what, it, what they were going to sound like, you know, and the band and I would rehearse to those MIDI recordings before we got a chance to get into Betcher.
0: take a break from our conversation with folk singer Gregory Allen Isakoff. My colleague Brian Warner visited Isakoff at his Boulder County farm in June, shortly before the release of his album with the Colorado Symphony. Coming up, we get a preview of Isakoff's new, new album. That's right, a track from his next release, Midnight Machines, which is a working title. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Havel. Let's return to our conversation with Gregory Allen Isakoff. The singer-songwriter makes his Red Rocks Amphitheater headline debut Sunday. Earlier this summer, my colleague Ryan Warner visited Isakoff at his Boulder County farm. This was shortly before the release of his latest album, on which he was backed by the Colorado Symphony. This adds an orchestral sound to tracks that mostly come from previous records. Isakoff tours with a smaller group of classical musicians, and that means he's had to rework these songs countless times. Ryan asked Isakoff if he'd rather work on new material. You know, it's funny, I, I'm I'm almost done a new record
2: right now that I've been working on for about a year. And I'm still working on some of the writing, and I'm I usually the way I work is I make a record and then I let it sit for like three to five months.
6: And or come, some of your fans would say years. Maybe
2: yeah. <laughs> it can it can it can be. And then I come back to them and make sure I still feel something when I hear them. Um because I think when we finish something we're excited about it you know it's our favorite our favorite songs are the brand new songs that we're working on today
6: right but if they endure months later in your head that means they're good
2: if they live then you know they're gonna live longer sometimes they don't and sometimes the one I, ones i really want to work don't work so i need that amount of time that that amount of time is really a huge ingredient for me to make records
6: and that isn't necessarily the record business. No. Which I suppose is why you're on your own label, right? Best label ever. <laughs> because you know the boss, I guess, yeah. don't you?
2: Yeah, Sarah treats me good and This is Sarah Levine who's Sarah Levine's the, one right? of my old best friends and she's been, here with us. We've been working together for what, a while? Yeah. Decades. Decades, she says. And you know, she we started out, she lent me her car to play South by Southwest, and we drove down to Austin and, handmade cds in the back seat and been working together the whole time what
6: can you say about the forthcoming album
2: uh yeah it's got a work in title of midnight machines i've been working on it's sort of just is what this place looks like in the middle of the night and there's all these glowing tubes everywhere and i, I just like always picture that like uh, you know that mad scientist part of us like <laughs> with the swinging light or something but a lot of the songs are are new and then some are like voice memos from like 2011 that I did in like a hotel room or something and so I've been kind of digging into old stuff too and kind of reworking some writing and
6: could we hear a little something from the forthcoming album sure okay this is one that um
2: I just sort of finished that I've been kind of working with for a year or so what's it called uh San Luis like the valley like the valley but I wrote in California but that's how songs are you know Inspiration is that place specific. No way. But is it about the valley? Um, I think so.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm a ghost to you, you're a ghost to me, birds of you, San Luis.
6: Gregory Allen Isakov. It seems like a lot of your music has themes of travel, whether it's like a literal road trip across the country or maybe a figurative journey through life. First of all, do you agree? <laughs> I think it makes, yeah, I think I I do draw on a lot of like sense of place. And how much of that is this place where we're standing? A lot
2: of, I make a lot of stuff here. But I, you know, I write a lot, kind of scribble around everywhere I go. And um, this is my place to kind of, go through all of it, you know, yeah. kind of piece it together.
6: A lot of musicians have a hard time writing on the road. It doesn't sound like that's a problem for you. No. I think the practice of writing, you know, I,
2: is something I, I do every day. And then there's a few things that are kind of worthy of song, but a lot of it just goes into the parts yard or just kind of, maybe I'll come back to that later, but probably not.
6: Mm, but probably not. Yeah. A lot
2: of it will be lost. Yes. Man, you... You have never seen my trash can it 's gigantic.
6: Isn't, the
2: stuff that I throw away is so much you know
6: but isn't that a mark of good writing that you're willing to throw a lot of stuff away and separate the wheat from the chaff to to give you a farming metaphor <laughs> well, I
2: think it's um it's part of any art, any craft you know you're always refining refining, and you have to make a lot of material and you kind of fearlessly and then and hopefully you get something
6: good. You you have been quoted as saying that you don't consider yourself a very strong songwriter. I mean, at the risk of being obsequious, I, I just think that's such baloney.
2: I don't know about anything like that. I I guess I don't really think um, of myself as like this great musician. You know, like I'm working with all these. Um, my band is amazing. They're all like this understanding of their instruments is incredible, and I'm sort of just, like, banging away on, like, a C and an F, and, you know, and maybe I'll use the capo a couple of times, so I, I guess that's, I, I just don't live in that realm when I'm writing, I just sort of write to a, a line or
6: a melody, and everything falls around that. And obviously your band fills in yeah, a lot. huge, yeah. I understand that one songwriter you particularly admire is, is Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I love him. What, what about him?
2: He put out a record in the 90s called Ghost of Tom Joad, yeah. which was, like maybe one of my favorite records of all time. He's able to paint this landscape so efficiently and tell these stories so amazingly from start to finish. A lot of people listen to music so differently now. I'm a big fan of listening to like whole records, you know? And I make records for people that maybe like to do that too. But I have no judgment about, oh, someone wants to just buy a single or listen to this song while they run or whatever it is you know
6: Uh, why don't you leave us with one more track from the new record with the Colorado Symphony do you want to say a few words about Big Black Car? sure Um, I don't
2: really know where a lot of the songs come from that particular song um, I think was it happened really quickly it was one of those songs that I think we get spoiled by as songwriters because some can just be you know, nine-month situations, and that one happened pretty swiftly.
3: You were a phonograph. I was a kid. I saw the near close, just listening. Was there when the rain tapped away down your face? You were a miracle. I was just holding your space. What's
6: it about? Um, I don't know. Hm. It's funny. It's the second time you've said that. It's not important for you to know what a song is about. No. It just—the most important
2: thing is that it takes you to a place, and then it brings you back somewhere. That's—I think like the magic of writing, you know. That's the coolest thing about music is it'll just transport you somewhere.
6: And in this case, in a big black car with the Colorado Symphony. <laughs> yeah. Gregory, thanks so much for being with
2: us. Thank you so much too.
3: Thrown it all in your face The past she is haunted The future is laced Heartbreaking all drives A big black car I swear I was in the backseat Just minding my own Through the glass The corn crows come like rain They won't stay, they
0: won't stay. Boulder singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff, speaking with CPR's Ryan Warner at his Boulder County farm earlier this summer. The latest album is Gregory Allen Isakoff with the Colorado Symphony, and Isakoff makes his Red Rocks headline debut this Sunday. You can find the music video for his song Liars at CPRnews.org. And that's our show. Thanks to our audio engineers, Brady McNichols, uh, Brady McNellis rather, and Matt Hers. my director Stephanie Wolfe. Thanks also to Andrew Dukakis and Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Producers Anthony Cotton and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great holiday weekend.
3: We watch them go round and round. All Serbs on the ground.